when I was a little girl, round about the age of three or four, I was out for a walk with my family. It was summertime, so I was wearing little open-toed sandals. And at some point, as I hopped on and off the curb, I fell and scraped my toes. And they were cut and bleeding, and I sat there like the sorry little mess that I was. And then my daddy came along, and he scooped me up, and he put me on his shoulders. My toe was still sore. I could still see the blood. There were still tears running down my cheeks. But I was in my dad's arms, and I knew that that was a safe place to be. A soul that is centered in God always knows that it has a heavenly father who will hold its pain, its fear, its anxieties. The psalmist in the passage that we've just read starts off in the midst of woes. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. He is feeling oppressed by his enemy, but he knows what his soul needs. His soul needs to be centered on God. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The message translates that little bit as, give me your lantern and compass. Give me a map so I can find my way to the sacred mountain, to the place of your presence. Last week, you were thinking about the struggles of the soul. When the soul is struggling, what does it cling to? Where does it find its sense of balance, its equilibrium? John Ortberg, in the book Soul Keeping, tells of how farmers in the Midwest of America used to run a rope from the barn to their home at the first sign of a blizzard because they knew stories of people who had died in their own yards because they could not find their way home. The soul is seeking a center, something around which to orbit, something to hold on to that provides the real way home, a place where even in the midst of storms or scuffed toes, there is a sense of safety and of trust. The soul is seeking God. But so often as we recognize that we are seeking something, grasping for that rope to hold on to, we reach for the wrong things. The soul comes alive when it is centered on God, but it slowly dies when it is centered on other things. 
And even those of us that love Jesus can easily begin to put other things at the center of our being and then wonder why life is just somewhat out of kilter. And so we need to guard our souls from the distractions, the idols, the lies that would seek to infiltrate that space. A little while ago, a friend and colleague of mine got me to look at a very, very famous parable from a different point of view. It's the parable of the sower in Mark chapter four. And maybe like me, you've known this parable since you were really little. You were taught it in Sunday school. The parable of how the sower goes out and sows the seed and it falls on different types of ground. And Jesus explains that the different types of ground are the way in which the word of God is received. And of course, one of the seeds lands on good ground and it grows and it flourishes and it produces an abundant crop. And the way I had always understood it was that essentially, because I'd accepted Jesus into my life and I'd gone on for many years as a Christian, I must have been the good soil. Great. This is a good parable. I seem to come out of it very, very well. Thank you, Jesus. On to the next one. And then my friend asked me to look at what Jesus says about the thorny ground. Jesus says, still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And what my friend was saying was, look around you. Look at the culture that we live in. Are we not living in thorny ground? And if we're not really very careful, then the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things begin to grow up around us. There is a suggestion here that the seed does start to grow, but it gets choked. It becomes less fruitful. I don't know about you, but I can recognize that. That actually many years ago, I was all out for Jesus, and I was young in my faith, and I was ready to do anything. And over time, as I maybe get a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more settled into life, then actually those worries, that, those desires for other things, they do begin to grow around me very gently without me really noticing. Perhaps they begin to make me unfruitful or not as fruitful as I can be. And I wonder tonight, have you allowed your soul to be centered on other things? Do you need tonight, like I do, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to do some spiritual weeding? Perhaps the things that are filling that space are actually lots of very Christian activities. Maybe we've become so used to spending our time and energy on the spiritual busyness that we've forgotten that this is about devotion, not doing. It's about desire, not duty. 
Ortberg talks about how God wants to make every moment of my life glorious with his presence. Is that how you're living? I know it's not how I'm living, but it does sound wonderful, doesn't it? Last weekend, I was up in Aviemore at the Deep Impact Conference for youth and children's leaders. And the person who was the main speaker was a guy called Matt Summerfield. And he is not only a church pastor, but he also heads up Urban Saints in the UK. I have no idea how you do both, but apparently you can. And he talked about something like this and about how a time where in the midst of a, a retreat day, the Lord gave him a picture. And the Lord was seated on his throne and Matt was rushing past. And as he rushed past, he'd be like, hi God, and he'd carry on. And he rushed past, hi God, and carry on. And he said at first when he looked at the picture, he was actually quite pleased. Because he thought, I'm busy. I'm doing things. This is good. And I'm checking in. I'm checking in with the Lord. I haven't, I'm not ignoring him. I know he's there. And then he said that he felt God say to him, Matt, stop. Come here, put your head on my lap, be still. It's about devotion, not duty. The psalmist in a different passage says, I have set the Lord always before me. The only activity being spoken about there is purposefully making ourselves aware of God's presence, giving him the center ground. The soul comes alive when it is centered on God. So Father, tonight we invite that you would take your place, that we would push aside anything that we have elevated in our lives higher than you. Let us know what it is to keep you at the center. But I believe that there is also great freedom in that place. Just before the Commonwealth Games last summer, I had the opportunity to go to the National Prayer Breakfast. And unsurprisingly, they gave it a bit of a sporting theme. And there was an interview with Kirsty Balfour, former Scottish international swimmer. And she was being asked about the difference that having her life centered on God had made to her swimming career. And she talked about a time where she'd gone to a, a swimming meet and it was one where she was trying to qualify for something. I can't remember the details, but it was aiming to qualify for a significant event, a world championships or something like that. And she had a really bad day. She swam terribly, she was really slow. She was absolutely expected to qualify and she didn't. And she was interviewed afterwards. And in the interview, she, she kind of just said, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed. But hey, life goes on. And the people around her were absolutely flabbergasted because everyone else who was there, the center of their world was swimming. But her soul was centered on God. And that gave her a freedom from the pressures and expectations in a way that other people could not understand. Because you see, when we realize, 
Sorry, I just lost my place. When we realize that no external circumstance can keep us from God, it actually loses its power over our soul. Things might come against us that are disappointing or frustrating, hurtful or disorientating, but nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I think that a lot of Christians have a sense of that freedom that we have as being quite a a serious and somber thing. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to buy that freedom for sin. And quite rightly, we are thoughtful, we are subdued. But we don't just have freedom from we also have freedom for. Our souls were made for freedom. But I think sometimes we look like the least free people around. Even we can get so caught up in the rules, the shall nots, the traditions, the expectations, that we don't really experience that freedom. Somehow we still feel a bit caught or trapped. When God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, it wasn't a big list of what not to do. It was about identity. God was saying, this is who you are. Now, I have met and seen and sometimes been the kind of Christian who knows this, but who lives it in a very apologetic kind of way. No, I'll not have another drink. No, I I don't sleep with my boyfriend. It's just just not what I believe. No, I, I don't want to come and see that kind of film. You can almost hear the sorry afterwards. It doesn't sound very free. But if, rather than hear God say, you won't, we instead hear him say, you don't have to. That's not who you are. It's not who I made you to be. I think there's incredible freedom in that. And then we see that actually the world is the place with all of the rules, all of the you have to's. And we're the ones with the freedom to say, no, I don't. The person who I've seen live this out the best is actually my younger brother. I am such an amazing older sister that my brother decided that he would follow me to university two years later. And we were both in Chester. He managed to come and be just way cooler than me. I immediately got street cred as soon as my brother appeared on campus. No one knew who I was until my brother arrived, partly because my brother was like really good looking and also very talented, very, very good at hockey. And he pitched up um, at the hockey club and he was just like, hey, you know, I'm here to play, I'm pretty good. And uh, of course, any of you who've been through university, particularly to sporting clubs will know that they have initiation ceremonies right at the start of term, and it usually involves an awful lot of alcohol. Well, my brother didn't drink. Just, 
he didn't really like it, he never really wanted to, and he just didn't drink. And so he said, well, guys, it's great, I'm here to play, happy to do the initiation and everything, but I, I don't drink, so think of something else. And of course, they're like, no, 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 you have to. Like, this is what it is, you have to. And he said, well, I, I don't drink, and I'm okay with that, so if you want me to play, I'm happy to be part of your team, think of something else. And so they did. They came up with some other horrible concoction of liquid that was disgusting, and he drank that instead. But he was in the, the hockey club, and he went out there, and he just lived for Jesus 100% in the most unapologetic kind of way. When it came to Wednesday and sports day at, at universities, and everybody goes and plays in the afternoon, and then Wednesday night, big night out, he was there, sober as a judge, first one on the dance floor, last one off the dance floor, giving it large, having a great time. And eventually, having lived in that place, utterly unapologetic for who he was, what he believed, being entirely open about all of that stuff, one of the guys who was the same year as me, one of the real hockey lads, big drinker, turned around to my brother one night and said, I see what you have. You have real freedom. The parameters that God places around us are not to be a killjoy, but rather for our safety, for our thriving, for our well-being. And when we see that, and when we trust it, then we can say, Father, I wholeheartedly surrender to you. And that surrender brings freedom for our souls. We have such an opportunity to model something different to the world, to a world that thinks it is free, but it is bound up in chains enslaved to rules and expectations that bring death, not life. Let's live in our freedom in a way that makes people stop and pay attention. The soul craves, it craves satisfaction. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh, I think. That's what it looks like to me, which is used to describe longing, wanting, desiring, striving. And when it's used in the Bible, it is often translated as mouth or stomach or throat. Our souls are always craving and will never be satisfied unless we look in the right place. Jason Robinson was a rugby union player, played for Sale and England and the British Lions. And before that, he played rugby league at a time when rugby league was the professional game to play. And he played for Wigan and England and Great Britain. And during his time at Wigan, he was at the top of his game. But this is what he says about that time of his life. I was extremely successful at my job. I was financially secure. I had everything material that I could want. But I had relationship problems. 
I was having great success on the park, but off it, my problems were overpowering me. It got to the stage that I would be out drinking six nights a week. On the outside, everything was great. I was earning a lot of money, I had a fast car and nice clothes. People wanted to be associated with me. People probably thought, I want what he's got. But inside, I was empty. I was searching for something. I was looking for happiness in money, in possessions, in drinking, in relationships. But none of these could fill the space within me. And then Inga Tuigamala, a Samoan player, came and joined the club who was a Christian. And Jason Robinson says this about him. I couldn't work out why he was so happy. He turned up every morning with a smile from ear to ear. Yet he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't sleep around, and he didn't have the nicest car in the car park. Inga never pushed his views on me, but if I ever wanted someone to talk to, he would always be there for me. He spoke to me by how he lived, much more than by anything he said. He had something special about him. I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew he had something that I wanted. By living what it was, what it is, to be satisfied in God, Inga Tuigamala was instrumental in Jason Robinson giving his life to Christ, who in turn has gone on to be a real example to others in the game of rugby and beyond, of what it looks like to live with a satisfied soul. Jason Robinson might be an extreme example of someone who is looking to satisfy his soul with other things and in other places. But let's be honest with ourselves for just a moment. We do it too. We can fall into that trap of thinking, yes, I have Jesus, but in order to be really satisfied, I have to get great exam results and a good degree. I have to know I'm a success. I'll feel satisfied when I have my house just the way I want it. When I get married. When I have children. When I'm retired. John D. Rockefeller, who has passed into popular culture as the embodiment of wealth, was famously asked, how much money is enough? To which he replied, just a little bit more. Our souls crave. And if we are not careful, we can easily start looking for our satisfaction and our fulfillment in people and places other than God. And we will come away hungry every time. Those other things might be good, they might bring us joy, but if they are what we are using to find ultimate satisfaction, we will be disappointed. But there is a promise in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money 
and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. There is a feast to be had beyond what we can imagine. Riches that our souls are longing for, that we were made for. Every moment of our lives can be glorious with his presence. When we give him his place at the center, when we surrender ourselves to his freedom, and when we find our true satisfaction in him alone. Let's just take some time to pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and do some spiritual weeding tonight. Would you come and dig out that which has overgrown the sacred center ground of our souls? Would you help us to tear up the weeds that threaten to choke us, make us unfruitful? Would you show us what those things are? Father, we surrender to you tonight. We want to live in your freedom. Father, would you help us to live it fully, to model something to a world who think they are free, but they are not. Would our souls know that freedom? Would it shine from us to other people? And Lord, if we have been resisting because we've wanted things our own way. Tonight, would we just give that up? <coughs> Surrender it all to you. And Father, we want to feast on your presence. Would you teach us this week what it is to be satisfied in you? to set you always before us? Would the other things that we've been looking to to satisfy our souls, would they just pale into insignificance as we set our gaze on you? Lord, let us find our satisfaction in you and you alone. Amen.